Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey folks, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 113 with my guest all the way from Halifax on the east coast of Canada, Rose Cousins. I hope everyone is doing mighty fine out there. We're into November now, and I will be releasing these shows at least every two weeks from now until the end of 21. So please subscribe, spread the word, and we'll see you at some point for season six in 2022, probably March or early April, something like that. Uh, what's going on here? My studio build is kind of underway now, and it's a giant heap of wood right now, but I'm hoping in the next couple months things will be in place and I'll be back in business there. For the meantime, I'm set up in my house and doing remote recording and mixing and all is going well. And I would like to mention though that I am going to be releasing three albums next year starting in March. Why three? I don't know. It just happened that way. And they're finished, but I don't really have enough money to print vinyl, and I do want to print vinyl, so I've started a Kickstarter campaign to basically pre-sell vinyl. And if you want a copy, if you've ever been interested in my music or want to get in on that action, it's going for another couple of weeks, and I would greatly appreciate if you'd consider having a look and pre-ordering some vinyl. And it's all on the front page at stevedawson.ca. There's a big graphic on the front page and a link to pre-order vinyl, and that takes you to Kickstarter. All right, so today's guest is someone that I've known about for many years, being from Canada, but I've never had the chance to meet or play or anything with her until we did briefly meet at a Folk Alliance conference. I think that was in New Orleans a while back, and uh, we set up this conversation. Rose has been making records for quite a while now. She's got, uh, it's hard to tell, seven or eight releases, but some of those are like early EPs and live albums, so I'm not sure exactly how many she considers full albums, but it's somewhere in there. And her 2012 album was called We Have Made a Spark, and that got a lot of attention, and that's probably around the first time that, that I started hearing about her out on the west coast of Canada. Uh, Bravado is her latest full album, and it's what we get into pretty deep in this conversation. It's really stunning. And uh, her voice and playing and writing are really unique and soulful. And I wanted to delve into her writing and recording process. And so that's what we did. Rose also has a really interesting deep bond to the Boston folk scene. And it all centers around Club Passim, which is a uh, uh, like a folk venue in um, Cambridge. And all the great local writers and performers there and the and that scene is sort of where she came up as an artist and those artists really nurtured her and I think it's an interesting look at how that can happen and how community can help to create great art especially these days and Rose has also worked with a number of interesting musicians and producers including Joe Henry on her 2017 release Natural Conclusion so we talk about all that stuff and you can get news on her and her music and her touring at rosecousins.com and I'd encourage you to check out her albums there too. All right, let's get down to it. This is my conversation with Rose Cousins. Steve, we've, have we ever met in person? Like maybe once for a hot second? I think a hot second at Folk Alliance, honestly. I think, I, I think that was it too. Did we, did, I, did we have a brief exchange in New Orleans? Were you in New Orleans? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that I saw you there and we spoke for a few minutes maybe. Yeah. Like a year ago. Yeah. Exactly. A little more than a year. Oh my God. Happy anniversary. 
So you're where are you? You're outside of Halifax, in Halifax. What's your? I'm in Halifax. Yeah. Okay. Just on the other side of the rotary there, going out towards Bears Lake. Okay. Have you ever been to Halifax? I've been many times. Yeah, I spent a good chunk of time rehearsing with Matt Anderson last year there. Um, but I've also spent time there when I was playing with Old Man Ludica. And right. I toured around there quite a bit on my own mm-hmm. and with Chris and with other people over the years. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I was out there for a good two weeks with Matt Anderson last year. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, we rehearsed at that um, uh, place above his manager's office. Um, the Sonic Temple. The Sonic Temple. That's it. Now, you're originally from the East Coast, but there's some talk of you being in Boston at some point in your life. So did you live in Boston, too, at some point? No. Okay. Um, no, I just uh, had an early affinity to Boston. Um, for some reason, the the songwriters that I was listening to and being inspired by were kind of all from that pocket and it led me to this place called Club Passim, which you've probably played. I lived in, in Boston. Harvard's, yeah. Yeah. So in Harvard Square. Yeah. And so I just, it was like, you know, back when I was so hungry to just like know all the things. And so I would go down, you know, internet holes of my favorite artists and see where they were playing and who they were friends with. And, you know, like back when we were like holding CDs and reading who sang on what record and who was, yeah. you know, how, how you would find out who's connected to who and, and yeah, for some reason there was just this grand convergence in in Boston. And um, like, who, what what kind of songwriters are you talking about? Oh, very early on, like Chris Delmhorst, yeah. Deb Talon, who okay. became part of the Weepies, Rose Polanzani, Edie Carey, Melissa Farrick, John John Gorka wasn't from there. He's from the Midwest, but he played there. Like I, you know, it's like I just went went and became familiar with the the club's website, and I would look to see who was playing. And so you would just like drive down there regularly from Halifax? No. Um, I made my first EP. And at the time I was working a full-time job at Dalhousie University, um, coordinating alumni events. Really? And we had a, we had a small pocket of Dalhousie alumni in Boston. And um, so, you know, we were kind of like, well, shouldn't we do an event in Boston? So I went down there. I think we might've done something at the consulate. And I, you know, had had told my superiors that I that it was cheaper for me to fly home on a Tuesday. Oh, you, um, you, bam- you would have probably you bamboozled them. Well, they wouldn't have known, and it wouldn't have made much difference. But maybe we went in on a Thursday, and I was like, instead of flying back Monday, it makes more sense for me to fly back Tuesday because there was a two song open mic night at uh-huh. Club Passim on Mondays. Yeah. Um, Are we talking like early two thousands here? Is that sort of where? Yeah, you're, early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, that would be 2002, I think. Okay. And so I went to Boston, did the work event, and then I took some alumni out to a show. We saw Toshi Regan nice. at Club Passim. And then I think that was the Sunday night. So I, you know, I, I, made, I made friends with some of the alumni. And then I, you know, as part of my job, um, took, took them out for dinner and a show. Nice job. Yeah. Well... <laughs> And then the Monday I went and I played two songs at the open mic and I left that little EP that I had just made that year. Yeah. And um, nine months later, as if a child was born, yeah. um, the, the club manager, Matt Smith, whom you know. I don't um, know. Email. Okay. Well, but, he okay. emailed me. He, there, <clears throat> 
three that at that point two well at, at still twice a year the club does a fundraiser it's a festival a three-day festival where they have just like basically 12 hours of music each day oh, you know over 100 artists come they play for free but they can sell you know cds right. and um i think we did play that with birds of chicago oh most likely you did yeah. for sure um so he invited me to come and play the festival after all that time after all that time, and I'd left my CD at the front desk with this guy, this older gentleman named John. He had a huge long beard. He was like full frontal folk. <laughs> and I said, I have the CD. Like, should I leave it? He's like, obviously, there's no guarantees, but sure. And I just couldn't believe that, you know, Matt Smith would have gotten to like the, the bottom of the stack of right. CDs, you know, that he would even have listened to it. Yeah. And he did. And he's just an unbelievable human. And uh, yeah, and he got in contact with me and uh, invited me to the 2003 September Labor Day. They do Memorial Day and Labor Day. That was the beautiful opening door to becoming, to, 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 for that to become a huge and important and significant family that I am now so honored to be a part of, of songwriters and friends and people I've made records with and records for. All stemming from that particular festival weekend. Well, yeah, that was like, you know, Matt opening the door and saying like, come and do this, you know? And I, I drove down, two friends came with me. We drove in a car, there was no, we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> you know, we had MapQuest printouts. And, oh, yeah, those are, um, those are fun. Yeah, <laughs> you know, figured our way around everywhere. And yeah, it was really exhilarating mm -hmm. and yeah i mean i played at like 12 p.m on a saturday but that saturday rose polanzani was there in the audience because she came to listen to another friend of hers who was in my round and we just had this amazing moment afterwards where she's like we have the same keyboard and my name's roseanne too and it's spelled the same way <laughs> and oh my god our mom's names are both linda really and yeah. And we just became, we just, that, that was like, uh, that was the second door really Rose Polanzani kind of like being like brought me into her world and introduced me to just, I don't, I don't know her. She's a songwriter from there. She's a magical unicorn that you should know. Okay. She's amazing. Okay. Yeah. And th I think that's the thing about Boston. It's like, who are the significant artists from Boston? When you think about it, like that's not one of the hubs of the industry. Right. And that's, I think what makes it unique and gives it this rich, warm community that's not worried about competing with every single other thing that's going on in the world, like New York. Like when you go to right. New York, New York's like, you know what? Imp try, just try and impress me. Yeah. But Boston's like, come on, come on. We're going to the Lizard Lounge. Let's go and listen to Dennis Brennan playing on a Wednesday night. It's an amazing band. And all the members of the band play in very significant other bands, but on Wednesday nights, they'll converge and play you know, do two sets of incredible music on a Wednesday Yeah, in Cambridge. Like, because that's, because they just love playing with each other and like everyone helps each other make records. And it's, yeah, it's really unique and really special. And, and I don't know if I just got lucky and it's of a time, but I'm deeply grateful. Like I, I have blossomed as a musician in their arms for sure. Mm -hmm. It's important to have a, a scene like that that you really feel a pull to. So was that more of a thing for you than the Halifax scene, which was also quite rich with songwriters at the time? Well, in the in the chapter, like the, you know, parallel chapters, but the chapter before that, when I was really incubating, um, playing open mics for years in and playing at Ginger's Tavern and 
any coffee shop that opened up was a, was a new venue. We're just like, oh my God, there's a new place on Barrington. There's a new place on really Upper Spring Garden Road. Like, oh my God, absolutely. And so, yeah, it kind of led getting into know um, the Halifax scene. Um, one significant friend there was Amy Campbell. And she was just, she just, she was just tapped into like music that I wouldn't have heard of if it weren't for her. So she was like the bridge to, to the music I was listening to that I eventually became a part of in Boston. She's a great musician herself and uh, was really a leader in the scene. What were some of the things that directly uh, came out of the whole Boston situation? And like, it's, it sounds like you were really pulled to that uh, particular community what stopped you from actually moving there and like becoming fully ensconced in it? I do feel fully ensconced in it. Um, and I don't think, I think it's, it's like when you're a traveling musician, you kind of get to be a part of several different worlds. And I don't feel less a part of it by not yeah. living there. And I think I just, I want to live, I want to live in Canada and I want to live near my family. So when I come home, I want to come home to here, but it is absolutely another home. Like I have just as much family there as I do here. And um, this is the first year that's gone by that I haven't been there. Like since 2003, I, w- I would have gone several times a year. And there's, is there still that sense of community there that, that you found in the early 2000s or has it sort of dispersed and changed? No, it's the same. And it only grows and evolves like, um, there's a beautiful feeding that happens from, because Berkeley College of Music is there. There's a magical thing that happens. There's musicians that come from there that kind of take what they learned and then become themselves. You know what I mean? Like people who don't get trapped inside the mechanics of music, but come out, come out of it and make something really magical. And like, and lots of those people feed back into the the passing scene. The passing scene is constantly growing and evolving. And that is a large part in due to Matt Smith's curation. Like he just brings, he's constantly bringing new people in. He's constantly looking for new music and, and pairing like he did for me. He's so he's still, he's still doing it. He is. Yeah. He sees, he kind of brings people in, develops them, puts them on the stage in front of other people that he knows will work well. That's how I met my best friend, Edie Carey. I opened for all of my heroes and he just keeps doing that. And then like now I'm in a position where people can open for me and, and they can have my audience. And it's this beautiful, like self-feeding loop, but it is very brilliantly curated by, with unbelievably open arms by Matt Smith, who manages the club. Then. And so you, like over the years from, from those early 2000s visits, you'd cultivated a, a following down, particularly in Club Passim, or were you playing around that area a lot? Or was it just like Halifax to Club Passim? coming home at, for some of those times? Yeah, so definitely several of the of the first few years, for sure, I was going and playing. I, I would move around, um, you know, eventually, when I got to be friends with Edie Carey, she basically took my hand and took me all the way across the, the states. And I played for all of her people. We sang together. I really learned so much from her about how to be a solo singer-songwriter, whether it was like how to conduct yourself on stage, how to talk to the audience, how to set up your merch table, how to just do everything. Like I just, yeah, I really feel like all the significant characters that taught me how to do this job were kind of from that scene. I I definitely incubated in Halifax um, and, and honed my chops in front of a microphone for the first time and for several years. And then, and then, yeah, maybe I toured 
in the States first more than I toured in, in Canada. Really, I kind of, I mean... Is that I, how it went for you? Like, you weren't slogging it out back and forth from from Victoria to Halifax ever? It was more of a more of a journey through the States for you? There was a lot of state, yeah, state stuff for me probably before I ever went yeah. west, went west. But I, but I mean, in that, all that to say, like it was happening in tandem. Like I did started, I quit my job in 2005 and did my first little tour with Jill Barber. We did a little East coast tour and then I just, yeah, I just kind of like looked for the people that I could open for and just kept, you know, kept doing the thing. So Jill, Jill was, sort of, I guess, coming out around the same time as you were, I kind of weirdly forgot that she was from the East Coast. Cause I, she's I, not, no, she's not from the, or is she from Toronto or something? She's not from the East Coast. She's, she's from Port Credit. Yeah. Just outside Toronto. Oh, okay. But she spent time out East when you guys were starting out then. She did. Yeah. I think she moved out here in 2003 or four and we, we found her really quickly and, and um, yeah, became friends. She was a little bit ahead of me because she was doing it before I was still kind of working my full-time job. I didn't quit until 2005, but we we had been playing together, I think, for probably a year in advance of that. So who are some of the other people in the Halifax scene in particular that you kind of bonded with and like cut your teeth with as far as like other songwriters that were around your age? Well, David Miles had moved from oh, yeah. New Brunswick yeah. and I got to know him, I think even through Jill, because she met him first. Um, Megan Smith was Jill and I and Megan Smith kind of got together and made a Christmas record at some point, but we used to commiserate on um, the develop the developments of our business and, yeah. and um, trying to figure out what the hell we were doing. Amy Campbell, as I mentioned, she had a, she had a company she called Battle Axe Folk where she would put on events and I got really involved with her on that. Yeah. I played a lot of open mics at the tickle trunk <laughs> and at planet pool. Wow where I would drink vodka and grapefruit drinks. Sure. Delicious. Very. When you're in your 20s. Absolutely. Yeah. And Amelia Curran, I think, moved to town maybe in 2001. Yep. Um, and, and that was amazing to meet her. And um, Matt Mays and I used to play open mics together. Oh, cool. What about Joel Plaskett, who I, I know, like, we'll talk about that as well. Like, you've worked with him on various yeah. things. But was he sort of... I guess he was sort of in a different scene. Like he was sort of rocking out with Thresh Hermit around that time, probably. Well, also he was like so famous, like, and, and so there was a significant moment. So there was, there's a, there's a place downtown that doesn't operate as a venue anymore, but it used to um, called the Kyber. Right. I played the Kyber quite a few times. Right. So he um, and his friend, Charles Austin, also my friend now had a, had a studio at the very top of that called the mullet. Really? And that's where Matt, Matt Mays made his first record, which I sang on, and where Joel Plaskett did a lot of his recording, including Down at the Kyber, his record. And so there was one moment I was playing, I don't remember if I was like warming up for a show or like preparing for an open mic night that I used to host. And he came in to like get a coffee or something. And I almost lost my shit because <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's Joel Plaskett. And then at some point he heard me sing in there. I don't know whether it was that night and um, like sent me a message and I almost lost it. And, and, um, and yeah. And then we, you know, I can't remember the exact, you know, path to our, our closest connections or like, what were the things that happened in between? But as you know, um, I became a part of his, his three project, myself and Anna Eggie became like 
the backup singers and we went on the road. We made the record and we went on the road together in 2009. Did that kind of like have to, I mean, that's sort of right in the middle of you getting going, basically, like your records are coming out at that point. Was that something that you had to like put your own thing on hold for or was it not that big of a commitment? No, it was actually perfectly timed. My first record had come out in 2006 and I wasn't going to, I wasn't, I wasn't make, I didn't make my next record again until September of that year. So it didn't, it didn't interrupt in my, it was perfectly placed in my cycle to be honest. So okay, I feel, I feel really lucky to have been a part of that. It was, and, and he, you know, every time I was a part of something like that, I learned so much. And um, that was a real concept too. Like it, it, it was a, a real sound that he, I, he was going for, I guess. And, and you guys did such a great job. You and totally. Anna, um, did you learn things about like like vocal arranging and things like that in that situation, or was it just all kind of like very spur of the moment, uh, easy to generate, or were you like really working on the the orchestration of those harmonies? We would have come up with some ideas, but Joel is someone who has a vision, and so he usually has has ideas of the way that it wants he wants it to go. Um, but, you know, Anna and I would give our, our uh, input. And um, yeah. were you guys touring like just the three of you, you and Anna and Joel at some point? We had also his dad oh, yeah, right. and a tour manager. Okay. Yeah. So we had, that was the band. There was four, four of us. It was a really incredible experience. It was a really amazing show. It was really cool to be in someone else's band and not be the leader and feel what that was like. Yep. Um, it was amazing to play in venues that were bigger than I'd played in before and, and see, you know, just the culmination of, uh, Joel's work and what kind of fans he has. And, and they're so wonderful. They just love him so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I learned, I learned a lot on that and, and it was, it was a really fun experience. Right on. So since we're talking about the, some of this Halifax stuff, um, can you tell me about some of your early experiences there? <clears throat> like as far as, you know, I'm always interested in how people get started. And in the case of of being a songwriter and performer, it helps being in a place that kind of nurtures that, like Halifax or Winnipeg or Calgary or yeah. not so much Vancouver. Totally. Not so much Vancouver. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what was that like for you? And like, what were some of your earliest experiences playing and, and your influences and things like that? Well, I mean, this, the scene for me in the late 90s, the very latest 90s and early 2000s was really going to this one place called the Tickle Trunk. Um, and my friend Dale Letcher, who's still very close with today, would oh, you know hold a spot for me in, on the Tuesday nights. And I would go and I would play Indigo Girls, Sarah McLaughlin, okay. Sinead O'Connor, Tracy Chapman, you know, and I would just play cover songs. So you were, um, you were performing before you were writing? I was, and I really, really, really wanted to write. I write. I wrote instrumental music on the piano from since I was very young. Really, didn't do much to record it, and really, really wanted to be a songwriter because I was listening to like Jonathan Brook and the Story. I was listening to Alison Krauss, who's not a writer but a curator. Mm-hmm. I was listening to Gillian Welch. I was listening to Patty Griffin, Sean Colvin, Ani DeFranco, Joni Mitchell, like all these incredible women who kind of each brought their own style and, but just deeply in love with melody and lyric and emotion. And I met up with a fellow named Ryan Roberts, who was a real inspiration in introducing me to 
John Gorka and, and kind of bluegrass music. Oh yeah. He and I would go to open my open mics together. I feel like I'm kind of scattered with my answer here, but bluegrass music and inspiration. Um, it was a diversion. I would say I was really into Ryan and he was really into bluegrass. Okay. (laughs) And so I wanted to know whatever he was into. Yeah. Um, and, you know, listened to probably more Alison Krauss because of that. But Alison also does, you know, she's, she's not stuck in, in one place either. Yeah. Um, she's just such a beautiful song interpreter. But I did listen to a lot of, you know, I listened to the Carter family. I listened to lots of different things because Ryan was in my life. Tony Rice, um, you know, um, Hot Rise, Tim O'Brien. You went down the rabbit hole. I was, yeah. At any one time I was down some kind of musical rabbit hole, just kind of, drinking it all in trying to listen to as much as I possibly could whether it was local music or but a lot of it came out of out of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Instrumentally so you mentioned piano were you playing piano like as a little tyke? Uh, A little hamster I played piano and I played it uh, until I like got my hands on a guitar I had a friend in high school who had a guitar and I was just like man I really want to play guitar and so when I I went to university I got a guitar for my um, 19th birthday and be just was obsessed. So you, you hadn't started playing guitar until you were like 19. Yeah, that's right. Cool. Yeah. It was like the driver of the day. I would just be like, I'd finish class or I'd finish volleyball practice or whatever. I'd just like, I just can't wait to get my hands on the guitar. Lots of concerts in the learning, you know, learning chords, learning basic songs, playing the cranberries in the stairwell, like yeah, and so then I kind of just became obsessed with the the guitar for for several years, and and even into my touring, there there it, it's harder to carry a keyboard around. So I just I didn't really play keyboard on stage that much once I started kind of working full time. Yeah. Um, and then my second record, I kind of started to bring it back in because it is definitely my first love, and definitely in my hands more of an emotive, you know, can let go of time. Um, instrument. You feel more more at home on the piano than you do on the guitar. Yeah, I think it's easier to express for me uh-huh. on the piano. Okay. Yeah. As far as the guitar goes, were you learning songs on it, or were you actually like getting into guitar playing? Like you've got a r- really intricate kind of finger style way of playing that I don't know if that just came from you kind of developing your own thing, or were you actually like learning guitar-y kind of things at some point? No, I don't. I, I honestly don't know what I'm doing on any instrument that I'm playing. Uh, I like I I play in shapes and spaces, and and as much as I know serves whatever it is that I need to do. Like yeah. I I would I learned guitar by learning songs. Right. You know, I learned open tunings from Sean Colvin and Joni Mitchell and Ani DeFranco. Like those women taught me all the different tunings. And is that mostly what where, where you're living is in open tunings? No, I don't play in open tunings. Oh, you don't? Okay. At all. I did early on. Yeah. Um, oftentimes I'll have my high E down to a D just because it rings out nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, but but no, I don't. I don't tend to, I play a lot of piano now. And actually I, I, on my last record, I mostly played ukulele. Yeah. I wondered about a, that. A so, bar- baritone. Yeah. Oh, so that's what that is. Okay. It sounded very ukish, but I didn't know if it was, but that's okay. So a baritone. So it's like in the range of, I don't even know what a baritone uke, where it lives. Is it in the range of guitar, it's which the, is four strings? It's like the cello range. Okay. I think. Yeah. But I don't, I, I do alternatively tune that one. You because do. it's more, it's more fun. Yeah. But I also don't, I mean, I don't really know what I'm doing. I just look for the spacious <laughs> and shapes that I like. Yeah. 
So yeah. you're self-taught on the guitar. Are you self-taught on piano as well? Uh, yeah. I mean, I took, I took a few lessons when I was very young, but ran into my ear getting in the way of me actually learning the theory. Right. Um, you know, I know the notes on the piano, but I can't, I need a second to tell you if to tell you which key I'm playing in and still I might not be right. So I, I learned basics, but I, but I, I would not say that I can read music. And for guitar, I just was like, show me, you know, like there was this girl, Sarah, who lived in residence with me and she, I basically stole her guitar for the first whole year leading up to when I get, got mine. And she would show, she would show me E and I'd be like obsessed with E and then she would show me C and then she would show me G and show me D. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, this is amazing. And I would just dick around on it. Right. You know, playing E for like seven days and being like, Oh, E is so great. You know? I say, I would say self-taught, but like people have showed me things. And also like, I'm kind of song taught. Like once I knew the chords or like, you know, you can look up chord tab on the internet and it tells you where you can put your fingers. So yeah, it's like a, co- a combination of. So when you're going to write something, I don't know if, if for you, if like lyrics comes, come first or if you, if you're a melody person or what your process is, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what drives you to a particular instrument for a song, or is it just purely like you're sitting around kind of dicking around as you say on the uke and something comes out or do you have lyrics and a melody and you need to find the right instrument to get that thing across um more the former i would say like sitting like for for example like songs for the for the my bravado record that came out last year i would have just been walking around with the ukulele on and and would catch a catch a melody or a chord formation that i thought was great i it's definitely not the same every time sometimes i have an idea that is that percolates for quite a long time like sometimes upwards of a year sometimes more sometimes I have like one melody thing that I'm just like that's gonna turn into something and I don't know when Mm -hmm. or what it's about yet so yeah it's kind of haphazard and every now and again as you know it's like if you're lucky you get something comes out in one fail swoop but that's very rare um exactly what you mean yeah just I I, yeah I just I just try and be patient Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say that my process is a bit, is, is a bit slower. If I really, I think I'm, I'm very discerning on, on lyrics and I want to make sure that I am saying the thing I'm meaning to say. And so do you have like books full of lyrics that have not found a song yet? Is that your, like, do you collect that as you go? Yeah, there, there's probably like more notes on my phone. Um, right. Yeah. I know that too. Yeah. You know, the transition has come, but but yeah, there are, there's definitely lots of lyrics that have been kind of abandoned, but um, every now and again, I'll go through old books or, you know, yeah, definitely like refer to notes on my phone, but I try and just capture little bits when they come because they're so fleeting. Right. If you don't write it down, you're not going to remember. I have a terrible memory. So yeah. And I don't know. I just, I kind of believe that if I'm not in a, I don't know if, how this last year has been for you. It has not been a creative one for me in the sense of my own writing. I wrote one song in June about the breakdown I was having in May and um, that was relieving, but I haven't been, I just kind of like turned towards my life and did life things because I've been on the road for 15 years and I, and I was just like, I got a dog and, you know, sold one house and got another one and like was just kind of taking care of my body and um, which was new. So I haven't, I've only really kind of started to 
to turn back towards creating for myself again as the year anniversary of my record has gone by and figuring out like, you know, how can I add some fuel back into this discussion, this conversation that is the record that feels still very important to me. And um, I think that the writing comes from being alive and I'm constantly collecting. And then at some point the songs are ready to come out, you know? Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. Let's talk about your new record because you were sort of going there anyway. And I've been listening to it a bunch and it's fantastic. Um, the timing of it is obviously unbelievably bad. I, I think the release date was what, February 20, 23rd or something like. 21st, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So... That aside, because obviously you're, you could talk about that till the cows come home as far as how shitty and kind of um, taking the wind out of your sails would that timing would have been in, in context of COVID. But what kind of positive things are there that have come out of putting out a record at that time? I would imagine there, there must be some things that you've gotten out of it that you wouldn't have if you were just like hitting the road constantly. Yeah, I don't, I don't actually know that we can assume that it was a shitty time to put a record out. I, I think that, I think that it's probably a stupid way to think of it because I, you know, in some way I feel bad for people who have a release who had a release this week last year, right? This is the week. This is like the day the world shut down, but this is the week we were in where everything shut down. So that. Yeah. I was on tour. We came home on the 13th. So that was it. Yeah. For me. Yeah. The 13th was my, the last show I saw Rhea May play in Truro. I came home on the 9th. So this would have been my first day home. So it's been a year I've been home today. Yeah. yeah. Um, thematically, my record was perfectly timed because the themes on like the theme, the song that had just gone to number one on CBC was the benefits of being alone, which is of course, here we are now everyone has to go into lockdown and quarantine and so many yeah. people are going to be by themselves. So I, you know, was it, was it perfectly timed or was it poorly timed? Does it matter? Like we're not in control of it. So, and, and my fans are so incredible that like I kind of froze. And then in April I was like, well, here's all the merch that I made, you know, and people have been buying merch, <laughs> yeah. you know, people have been buying merch all year and it's, it's been fantastic. And like, I haven't done a lot of things online. I did a couple of things, a couple of fundraising things for club Passim, And then one thing for the Junos. And, and then I was like, everything's going to be fine and taking a break and looking at the rest of my life is going to be fine. And so what did I learn? Well, I learned all of the things that I avoid by touring. Yeah. Like 
looking at what it is like to be alone with oneself, where touring, I see how touring and workaholic exercising really distracts and helps me avoid dealing with other things, like how I truly feel about myself, what things matter to me, what value I place on different things in my life. Um, I think it's been kind of a, a circuitous gift in some ways because I probably for years have been wishing I could take a break and I would never have allowed myself. Like I just, it's not something that I would have been off. like, okay, Come I, on. well, I mean that I can't even, I, I literally can't believe it. And I think I experienced, it's almost like I moved to a new city and I'm getting to know the new city because I have just these like very trodden cow paths that I move around in Halifax. Like I get home, I go, I get my mail downtown. I go and I get this, I get the face cream and I get the toothpaste and then I get this back in the suitcase <laughs> and I'm, and I'm gone. Yeah. And, and so I, and I got a dog and the dog has to walk outside every day. So my yeah. friends with dogs are like, you should come to this park. You should go here. And I'm like, I have lived here for over 20 years and I'm experiencing a whole new version of being a living human being that lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And, and I wouldn't have like things that like, I just see like how narrow my vision is and has been for the last 15 years. I'm just like, my peripheral vision is like, I didn't even realize I didn't even have any. It's like, I'm going, I'm going, okay, what's the next city? What's the next flight that I need to get on? I got to get in the rental car. I got to do this. You know, I haven't flown now for a year where I used to fly like six times a month. Me too. I know. So it's, it's a, it's, it was jarring and a bit whiplashy at the beginning, but it's, it's taught me, I'm still learning. I really think because I, I now have to kind of re-engage with work and I really want to figure out how to engage with it in a healthy way that allows me to do the thing I love and also take care of myself, which was something that was kind of going by the wayside, I think. I totally feel the same. Does does having that time away from it all uh, make you second guess the whole concept of like being out on tour? It doesn't make me second guess it. It just sheds a clearer light on things I already knew. You know, like when we're on tour, we're hemorrhaging money. We're, we're doing so much. There's so much output and so much output that you, that we become asymptomatic to. So it's not necessarily an efficient thing to do. Maybe some of the decisions are made not in a smart business way because it's an opportunistic business. Like when an opportunity comes up, yes, we want to do that. Like, how are we making the decisions about what we want to do? And I, you know, I started to feel that really hard in 2017 when I had this eight week tour for my natural conclusion record. And I, and I, at the end, I was like a particle of dust really, with no money. And like, I'm like, I just was mad. I'm like, why did I decide? Why did I willingly choose to do this? And what am I left with? I'm never doing that again. <laughs> so I know exactly that feeling. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing like that, especially after after like working your ass off and like the amount of yeah. stress and and toll it takes on your body, even like just being yeah. out there for that long. Totally. And for what? So I. I kind of had said to myself, I'm never doing it, it that in that way again, and was very deliberate about the plans for Mother Bravado record. I was going to do these five statement shows 
the biggest shows I would have ever done as a headliner and then wait, do some summer festivals and then go and do the second half of the country in September. And it turned out that I only got to do two shows, but they're the two biggest shows of my life. And so when I look back on it, I'm like, well, I went out with a bang and (laughs) this beautiful thing happened where I did a Toronto show on March 6th, March 5th and an Ottawa show on March 6th. And, and like those 2000 people, that was their last show. They were my last shows and they were their last shows before everything shut down. So we have this like bond and I think it, it cements us in time together in a moment that was shared. And, and I think it had, it, it is a thing that has helped, you know, keep my record alive. And I do think, you know, record cycles, do they go fast or slow? I don't know that there is a perspective. I don't know that there's something that is true about that or not, but I do think that the record is still young. You know, we're into award season now and I feel very lucky to have some nominations and, and hopefully there'll be a way to kind of continue the conversation, even if it's another whole year before I get to play with my beautiful band. Um, I think that that's the part right now that I'm, that I'm challenged by and excited to figure out is how to honor the thing that I made use the remaining assets that I haven't used yet, share the things that I wanted to share about it and not feel so sheepish about it. Because that's the other thing that happened this time of year is like, or last time of year, this time last year, I mean, who wanted to self-promote anything? Who wanted to talk about themselves? Good God, there's so many other more important, more pressing, more real things happening in the world. And so maybe right now in this slow gradual infusion of positivity with hopefully the vaccines coming and hopefully the numbers going down. Maybe this is, maybe this is the time where, you know, we turn back towards like, what, what can we do now to contribute? That has been really beautiful thing that music has continued to be released. Several of my friends have put out records in this time and, and it is like nothing really can stop the music from coming out, which is, which is great. And people who are the real fans and people love music. People need music. We create the soundtrack to people's lives. And, and I see that, I see that now, like it's, yeah, it's really special. Can you tell me a bit about the, the process of making the, well, the, it's not exactly new anymore, but it's newish. It's new. It is you. new, Steve. It's, it's new. new. Okay. The new record. So I need you to be positive. You, you self-produced it, um, and can you tell me a little bit about that decision? Like, I, you've, you know, I've noticed that you've used different producers basically for every record you've ever done. Uh, so what was it about this time where you felt like you were just going to take the reins and do a self-production? I don't, I don't know that I was, you know, I, I think I just, I wanted to make a record. I basically, like, wanted to, to play with the, the guys that I had on the record. And I, I booked a session two Februarys ago just to say, let's go in the studio for a day and put down a few songs to see what it felt like. Um, and it felt so great that I was that I booked another session in May. And by that time, I had written a few more songs. And then and then in May, I was like, shit, I'm making a record. Yeah. And was this in Toronto that you did that or, or in Halifax? It was in Toronto. Yeah. Um, okay. Union Sound. Uh, oh, in Chris the Stringer's place. Yeah, Chris Stringer's place. Nice. Yeah, so all these guys. So Josh Fantasso, who had been my drummer during the National Inclusion Tour in Canada, 
Robbie Grunwald, who, you know, played with so many of my friends and who's so exceptional. Brian Kobayakawa, who is such an incredible bass player, like electric bass. And he's so great just because he's so versatile. Like he plays pop music and he plays, you know, crazy improvisational, you know, bluegrass, whatever. Um, And Dean Druriard, who I've played with the most of all of them over over the years. But um, what does he play? Yeah, just Dean Druriard plays electric guitar. Well, guitar. Okay. I mean, he plays lots of things, but he's, he's extremely talented, but um, yeah, he plays guitar on the record. Um, so yeah. And, and I didn't really, you know, I guess the other, if I think about how uh, the beginnings of making the other records, you know, CBC made my first record out here, which was very, a beautiful start to my career. I really wanted to then, I worked with Luke Doucette because I'm such a huge fan of his. And then we have made a spark was, was made in my family that we talked about earlier in Boston. And Zach Hickman's name went on as producer because he he really took the reins and helped wrangle wrangle it. But that was really a it was really a beautiful like team effort. Joe okay. Henry was a was a deliberate ask. We had met at the Edmonton Folk Festival in 2012, and I was just yep. a huge fan of his and loved the way that he also. So I had made we had made a spark live off the floor in Boston. I knew Joe loved to make records like that, and he and I had just become friends between. 2012 and 2013. And, and so I asked him and he said, yes. And then, and then I didn't, I think I kind of went into this thinking, I didn't know, I didn't know I was going to make a record. And I was curious about a few producers, but, but I kind of was just like, you know, I, I, I have no problem being able to speak about what I'd like, but the main key for me in making records has always been the personnel. It's, it's like the ingredient, right. the ingredients of the players, you know, the things that I love about the players that I've always had on my team are that they have something beautiful in an, in, in what they do and they're open to, it's like, I just want that person to bring their magic. I don't want to tell them what to do. Yeah. I want them to, to follow their instincts, you know, within the first three takes. I don't want anyone to think about it. I don't want anyone to have the, songs or listen to them too much. I don't want them to prepare. That's actually something that Luke Doucette told me after my, my second record. He's like, don't, don't worry about preparing. Let's just kind of like get in there and do it. And I, and I love that. And that's what I've done. It's kind of like you get in there with the crew. This is the song. This is the shape of it. Let's go for it. Um, so, you know, I don't, and I kind of have the attitude of like, I want to hear everything. If you have an idea, I want to hear it, even if it's not on the instrument that you've been hired to play. Yeah. I want to hear everything because I don't think that I have all of the ideas. I have some ideas, but I don't have all the ideas. I just know that I'm going to know when I don't like it. Right. That's, that's important too. Yeah. And I have, and, and then, and while we're playing it, I'm going to come up with a base thing that I really want to happen right here. And like, as long as people are up for having the conversation and that's a conversation, not with our mouths, but just playing together to see what feels good. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of just feel like each record is uh, um, a result of the beautiful musicians who are the ingredients, and that is what makes a good record. And capturing a performance—that's my preferred way—is to be like, let's get that magic. It's literally never going to happen again. I'm never not involved in the production process. You know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not disinvolved any of the times. And so I was just kind of like, I don't, I completely trust trust myself. Mm-hmm. And, and also like I'm making the record with 
incredibly talented people whose feedback right. I'm going to get. And I'm just going to give myself, I'm not going to pay myself like I would pay a producer. It's cheaper, much cheaper. But I'm, I'm going to take the production credit because I'm the one that's making all the final decisions and it's, and it's fine. That's yeah. a producer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned Benefits of Being Alone and that's an interesting song, really interesting song, partly because of how it's the meaning of it really has has shifted for for you, I would imagine, but also for your audience over the last year. And you've got the two versions of it on the record. Can you talk a bit about that song? And also, like in the context of what you're what you're talking about, like sort of immediate responding to with musicians, like that song. The the first version of that song is like very orchestrated, and has like pretty complex horn arrangements and stuff like that. So were, were those things planned out? And with a song like that, what made you want to do the two different versions of it? Well, of course, the first version was the slow version. Um, oh, really? And, okay. Yeah. And I really wanted to write a song about literally the benefits of being alone. I was just kind of like, you know, everyone slags solo people, which yeah. I've been for the most part of my life. And I'm like, there's actually lots of really great benefits. And I really, really wanted to write that song. And I had that idea um, for a really long time before I brought it to my friend, my, a, a very, a, a new co-write that I did in England, um, in March of 2019, uh, 2019, is that true? Anyway, whatever year it was, 19. Sometime, yeah. sometime in the old life. Um, and he's like, what do you want to write about today? And I said, well, I have this idea. And then as soon as he's like, let's do that, I just barfed all the lyrics. Really? I'm like, I, I, it was one of those beautiful ones where I was like, he was screwing around on the piano. And I was like, Bleh! and I was like, I think I want to do it so that it's like Randy Newman because Randy Newman delivers, uh, yeah. he can deliver pain with a sweetness and a tongue in cheek, but in this kind of like sad piano way. So that was the, that was the, the original version was this, what you hear as the second version okay, yeah. as the reprise. But then we got in the studio and, re- and I recorded just a solo version of it myself. And then I said, do you know what I really want to hear is I want to hear this like Nick Lowe would do it because Nick Lowe on the other side of the spectrum does upbeat tongue in cheek, sad songs really, really well. So it, it, it's this beautiful, like each version brings out different sentiments in a different way with the tongue in the cheek, with the, with the painful truth and the tongue in the cheek and, and one sentiment could have both things. So I love that it is a song that is juxtaposed within itself and that it is not juxtaposed with the two different versions. Um, because they're like something that is a benefit could also be really also hard. There's that line in the song that sort of like turns it into super dark. The one about the line about, about not being found after you're dead yeah. for six days or whatever. Yeah. I can't remember what the exact line is, but like that yeah. sort of changes the whole vibe oh, yeah. of the song. Well, does it? I mean, maybe it does for you. Like well, this is this is the thing. It depends on who's listening to it, where they are in their life. Mm-hmm. It really hits people in a, it hits people right where they are. So if that line hits you, maybe you are thinking too much or not thinking enough about mortality. But it was an actual conversation that I that I started to have when I turned 40. I was like, it was like the aftermath of my 40th birthday party, and I was like, I wonder how many days it would take for someone to find my carcass in the bathtub. <laughs> like say I fall and slip in the bathtub, I'm dead. How many days will go by? Because if I, if you're, yeah. you know, like who am I in contact with every day? Who's checking in on me? 
Oh my God, what is my life setup? Like who knows my schedule? Who knows? Like if I, if I died in a plane crash, who would know I was on the plane? That kind of thing. Like it was, it's a real, like, it's like this, this, this fulcrum that you hit and you're just like, you're like, look at all the stuff that I've done. And like, what is the shape of my life moving forward? And what are the things that matter? And I was like, I wonder how long it would take someone to, (laughs) but it's also, it's true. And it's funny. And it is, it it does give it that little taste of Nick Lowe. You're right. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. What's the song? What's the song I'm thinking of? Um, The Expert. So this, uh, that actually reminded me of Nick Lowe, that song when I was listening to it, because I feel like he has a song too, where he takes uh, a personality trait and personifies it like you do in that song. Was that... Was he an influence on your songwriting? No, but okay, uh, not, not not deliberately. I just like when I heard the benefits of being alone, I was just like, this would sound really good in a like upbeat kind of Nick Lowe way. But okay. you know, and I and I I'm like a medium fan in the sense of like what I know of his catalog. So I wouldn't say that I'm just like I, lo- I know every Nick Lowe song and blah blah blah. I just think he's really smart because he's yeah. like it's kind of like Charles Bukowski's poetry. It's like no one's no he's not trying to pretend that he's not a dirty old man. And, and, right. you know, like, <laughs> I think the more true the, the thing is that you're singing about the, both the funnier and the more true it is. So it's like, you know, it's like, it's like the best parts of comedy. Like we have to laugh because we would just cry our eyes out if we didn't. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I, so no, I wasn't influenced by Nick Lowe on that. I was just influenced by my own experience of being a human living being who employs bravado deeply. And that was the thing that prompted the whole record. Like, I think it it was the summer before 2019. And I was like, oh my God, I wrote the fraud. It was the first one. And it Mm -hmm. was the, it was the first spotlight on like, holy shit. Like, here's the, who, who are, who do you present? Who have, what version of yourself do you present to the world? And who are you actually? And so that was the beginning of the exploration. And it was the beginning of just like, I want to make a record called Bravado. And okay. so that, that was, that's this just, I didn't think I was going to have anything that said Bravado on the record. And then the expert was one of the latest, one of the mo- most, um, the later songs that came out. Um, okay. And it was just kind of like, yeah, like let's pretend ver- Bravado is a person who's with me all the time. Right. And who I, I let, I let her take the lead so that I don't have to do all the things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I dig it, it's very cool. Some of the more uh, arranged things on the record, like how do those come to be? Like, do you get involved in like the horn arrangements and things like that? Or does somebody jump in and say, hey, I've got an idea for this and- Well, for the horns, um, my friend Dietrich Strauss, who's part of my Boston family, um, I heard horns, I was like, you know, I think horns would be great. So I flew the track to Dietrich and I just said, what do you think? And he can play all different kinds of horns. So I just said, make a horn point, go for it. Yeah. Um, And he, and he did, and it was amazing. So he recorded it in Boston and we flew it in Um, with the string parts. um, Yeah. I I got together with Drew Jureka and we, um, he kind of had come up with ideas and then I just went and we sat, we sat together and kind of honed them and then, in the end, there was the, the the string parts on the lullaby. I actually did virtually, like he had done some stuff. And then I just kind of worked with Chris Stringer. I think I was in Ireland at the time. And I was just kind of like between here and here, do this, this cello and this cello. And yeah, so I was, I was definitely in, in, involved with the strings too. But strings are, 
I'll always have a deep love for strings because they're so cinematic and they make something painful hurt even more, which is my favorite. And they've been a part of your records, really, maybe not on your first couple, but they've been, you've had strings on your records ever since, basically, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for the rest of the tracking of the new record, were you did you do like a live thing at all? Or was this like deliberately done differently? Um, like, were you all set up together in the in the studio? We were, yeah. The drums were contained, drums were contained, yeah. Um, Brian bass was contained because they're, they're acoustic. And yeah. then uh, Robbie was in the room and uh, Dean was in the room. And their amps, and you know, Robbie was all like keys. I was playing live piano, um, which we had blanketed. Okay. So yeah, there was, there, it was, it was live, but we also like, you know, went in and did other things for sure. Yeah. Do, do you cut your vocals live generally, or do you like labor over them or what's your vibe like with that kind of stuff? Um, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of of the mind where it's, it's one of the first three takes for me. Um, that's not to say that there's zero comping, but, um, the more I sing it, the more I'm going to not be in it when I'm singing it. Um, so yeah, I think, I think what, so when I play it and sang the benefits of being alone, for example, or the lullaby, yeah. Things where I'm playing piano, I'm capturing the vocal at the same time. And so they are kind of married to one another yeah. um, because it's just, it's just better that way. What about the uke ones? Same kind of thing? Or, or do you have to like focus on your, on your playing and then the vocals for that kind of stuff? No, they're very much, my playing and singing are kind of attached to each other. I definitely was playing and singing the, with the uke. Um, I may have... I think maybe, I think whatever we did was for isolation purposes. I may have had to go in and, um, you know, replay something, but I would have been like playing along to either my own vocal or, or opposite wise. Yeah. Like in general, how, how do you, in your mind and your like just general feelings about the different times in your life and the different sessions, how, how does that compare to natural conclusion that was done a few years earlier and with Joe Henry producing? And that's obviously a whole different setup you've got it's probably like a little higher pressure it's a more like expensive record probably uh you've got people you're playing with that you don't necessarily know probably like I think Jay Belarus is on that record who I don't know if you'd played much with him before and Dave is it Dave Pilch on bass Mm -hmm. on that right yeah uh so how was that experience different for for you um it was a really special experience. He kind of brought half the personnel and I brought half the personnel. And um, yes, it was the most expensive thing I'd ever made. And probably the thing I prepared for the most, like I really wanted to make sure that the songs were in my hands and in my head and that I was practicing singing. I think I had this goal of singing and like I sing when I'm by myself at home, like I really wanted to be present in the singing and playing and also the caliber of players that were going to be involved. Like I was just like, this is a huge opportunity for me to rise. So yeah. Um, yeah. And we had four days. So it was, yeah, he, he moves fast. Yeah. It was a heightened, I mean, all of my records have been made very quickly other than the send off, which, which, I had to just take Luke what how much ever I could get him over these 18 days. But the rest of them were made in, in a week. Um, but we had like, I think we made this one in four days. And it was, I think I was just kind of like, I was part of it and also mesmerized by it. 
And it felt like a really precious small window of time of being extremely present and open and, um, and, and because there wasn't the pressure of having a producer that I was kind of having to attend to and, and, and collaborate with, I was just for bravado. I was just collaborating with my friends and we were just making the record together and being like, what about this? And what about this? And I like this and I don't like this and let's go for it. That would not be fun. Let's do it. Like there was just less constraints on, I, I, I liked, I liked it. I liked all the processes of all the records that I've ever made. Um, and it was fun to be kind of fully at the helm of this one. Just what felt like making a record with my comrades, really. And the other thing I, I noticed that you've done a lot of is is co-writing over the years. And it seems like that became like a real thing for you at some point. Um, I don't know if it still is, but it seems like um, around 2015, 16 or something, you were doing a lot of that kind of co-writing stuff. Was that something that you deliberately felt you had to do to like kickstart something or was it just something that happened? No, I was very deliberate about it. I really wanted to do it. It takes me a really long time to like get to do the thing. Um, I have to think about it for a really long time. So I was like (laughs) in, I think it was 2014, like 2013, 14, I was really like, I really, really want to co-write. I'm terrified. You hadn't done it before? I hadn't. No, I hadn't done it before. I was like, I'm scared. I'm going to slow the process down. I really care a lot about lyrics. I'm going to get in the way. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to move fast enough. And, um, but I have, you know, I talked to friends of mine who are writers to get their advice. And then I kind of put it out to a music supervisor friend of mine. And I just said, I really think I want to do this thing. Do you have any writers in Nashville that you can hook me up with? I'm going to be here at this. And she, she did. We had a successful co-write. And I just was like, the best advice I got from was from my friend, Claire Reynolds, who's from Australia, but she lives in Nashville. Um, She said, you just take whatever you have with you that day into the room and don't hold back on ideas. And you just take whatever you have. And I just kept asking to be put in rooms. And I realized it's just a conversation between people. You Mm -hmm. get, you got to, either you know each other, you don't. And in, in the getting to know each other, there's so much less, I don't know if this experience is what you have, but like when you're going in to write a song, you don't have to do small talk bullshit. You just go into being like, what's in your brain today? Like what's the stuff that's been on your mind? And then you're just right at the, you're like, you can go get, get to the bone quicker. So I realized that that, you know, not every co-write is great as you know, and you can't always get to the bone and sometimes you don't even get a song, but, um, I, you know, I got uh, signed with, with Concord Publishing, with Razor and Tie, who was then bought by Concord, and they invited me to their camps, and I just got more and more reps. What, what, what do you mean by camp? What is, like, what is that exactly? It's like a gathering of songwriters over like a week's time, and each day you're in a write with one or two other people. And it's under the umbrella of a, of a publishing company? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You kind of write for film and TV. That's, that's, that's another one of my like the things that I would really like to spend more time doing and build my catalog for that. Um, yeah. Because my, you know, I'm kind of like good at sad shit. So there's always people, <laughs> there's, there's always people dying or suffering, Sure. you know, breaking up, all that Bring stuff needs to have a soundtrack to it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So yes. Yeah, so, so co-writing, I never, I, I haven't done a ton of co-writing for myself, but a few of the co-writes that I have done have gotten on to, my records and I've been thankful for because I was kind of seeing them as separate things, but it's always nice when one of them is like, I think that could be a Rose Cousin song. 
And that's been the case for the last couple of records, which has been great. What kind of shows or commercials have you found yourself on that that we wouldn't know as a Rose Cousins song necessarily? It's so funny. There's a there's like a show on, I think, like Amazon Prime that's called Younger. And there was just like maybe 15 seconds of a song that I was a part of. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, wow. I mean, I've been on Grey's Anatomy a couple of times, but one of them would have been distinctly me. And the other one you might not have known, but it was that first co-write that I did that my friend hooked me up with. Um, yeah, and I'd have to look at the list. There was like, yeah, like pro, there was a promo for Nashville, I think. There was a promo for the show New Amsterdam. I, I haven't seen half of these things, so. So you'll you'll write these songs and they'll just end up like as a promo snippet, snippet uh, yep. like while the show is being previewed or whatever. Wow, yeah. that's cool. Sometimes or sometimes it, or sometimes something gets right in the, right in the TV show. Um, and, and do you always know what it's being pitched for? Yes. When you get the offer for approval, you see, they tell you what it's for. Mm -hmm. And do you see yourself getting out and doing much touring in the next year? Or like, have you, have you talked to your agent or whoever about shows? Like I've been asking a lot of people that recently just to see where people, different people are doing different things. Some people are booking shows fully knowing that they may well get canceled. Some people just aren't bothering yet. Where are you at? Yeah. Um, I mean, I spoke to my agent this week and, and I mean, nobody has the power to be able to tell anybody when shit's going to happen. So we're saying we feel confident about one year from now. I have things that are scatter booked throughout this year and I'm just managing my expectations down to, to zero on whether they will happen or not. But you never know, like if the vaccination program goes through, whatever, I'd, I'd really love to have the opportunity to play to the largest crowds that would come to see me. So if I have to wait for another whole year to do that, who, who knows how long? I don't think it's, it's not something that you can decide. I think, you know, here in the Maritimes, maybe a few more things will get back to normal sooner because we have less people and it's easier to contain. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna enjoy kind of being still in the sense of not having to get on planes and I'm gonna, I'm enjoying learn, learning what it's like to be like a human being and to learn how to use my recording gear and realizing that there's still so much collaborative opportunity to co-write and to record together. And, um, you know, that it doesn't, I'm, we're, we're limited in that the fact that we can't play to people in a room, but I really do have a lot of faith that that will come back. And I know that we'll all be excited, both the musicians and the people who want to come see us. Let's call it there. That It's been great to talk to you about all this stuff. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. It's nice to like actually finally chat with you. I know there's lots of yeah. things we could probably still talk about, but. Uh, all right. Awesome. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. All right. See ya. All right, everybody. That was my conversation with Rose Cousins. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Yeah.